Hey, before we jump in, I just want to tell you that I have a new newsletter coming out. It's called Curious Cargo. Uh, all the rando links I found on the internet. Uh, it could have been a porn star on a porn website that might not be safe for work. It could be the placards. I went deep about placards and I want to find the best placards. So I bought a ton of different placards. I found one that I recommend. <laughs> and it could be about the latest tech products or the latest software that I'm using that I really love it. So if you sign up for that, I hope you enjoy it. And now, today's episode. Well, hello, people. Welcome to episode 38 of Misfits. This is where I speak to the outliers, the unconventionals, and the rebels. I want to see things how they see it and learn from these people. So some of these people include Betty Lee, who traveled, did a first solo travel around the world at the age of 60, taking soon, who's the architect behind People's Park Complex. And we have also a war veteran who became a couch surfer and a whole lot more. So today on the show, I have Michelle Florendo, a coach for type A professionals and executive. She has served on the inaugural coaching team for famous Seth Godin's Out MBA program, guest starred on Stanford's Design Your Life course, and is a founding member of the Forbes Coaches Council. So Michelle, amidst all these accomplishments, achievement, is also a mother of two. And her coaching philosophy is a blend of decision engineering, design thinking, and lean startup principle. Currently, Michelle holds a bachelor from Stanford University and an MBA from UC Berkeley. In this conversation, we spoke about so much things, right? We spoke about how Michelle evolutions as a coach, what is traveling with that, hard truth about being a coach, and so much more. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Michelle Florendo. So, I kind of want to get started uh, over with traveling roulette. Travel roulette. Um, so, a little bit of context. I There was a period of time in my life where I would travel abroad for at least two weeks every single year. And it's one of those things, it's like my way to unplug and just get a different perspective. I tend to be someone who, um, uh, I was about to say, I tend to be like workaholic in that I like work. I like my work and I have the great fortune of doing work that I enjoy. Like I'm the type of person who, who finds fulfillment in work period. Like I, um, I feel like there are some people who are like, oh, I want to be like fire, financially independent, retire early. And I'm thinking like, why would I ever want to stop? Like, Because for me, I feel like my work, whether it was in consulting or in industry or nonprofit or coaching, has always been my way of contributing to the world. So I generally like work, um, but I realize it's help- healthy to unplug. Hence the, okay, traveling abroad for at least two weeks, every single year for 12 years, until I was pregnant with my first child. And um, I, I'm very much a planner. 
again, like I'm an engineer, I think at that type of way, very like structured plan. Like even if you think about decision trees, like, okay, if this happens, this is my plan. If this happens, this is my plan. And uh, I had read a blog post about travel roulette at some point in time, and it just sounded interesting. So it's basically like, oh, the rules of travel roulette are you pack a bag, you go to the airport without a destination in mind. And then within, I don't know, like an hour of arriving at the airport, you book a destination and you go. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember reading that and I was like, oh, that sounds so interesting. And also the, the planner part of me is just like, and terrifying, like what, <laughs> who in the right mind would, you know, go without any planning or whatever. Um, but because I'm also a person who, you know, like I try to work on my edges, my developmental edges. And I think developing an appreciation for the unexpected and spontaneous I saw would be a good, good developmental thing for myself. Uh, especially if I wanted to have kids, right? Because there's no, um, there's no planning what life is like when you have kids and we can't control these little people. They have their, their own mind and they do their own things. And so when I was, when I found out I was pregnant with my first child that week, I happened to have an open weekend. And I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to do this, now is the time because I may never be able to do this again. And again, it'll be a good growth opportunity. (laughs) Get used to spontaneity and unexpectedness. Uh, so that's that's what travel roulette is, mm-hmm. and and I remember um, I think what struck me was after embarking on that exercise, and so I packed a bag. Luckily, it was August in California, and so in the U.S., August is a pretty um, it's not like a weather extreme month, mm-hmm. so it wasn't like it would be in the dead of winter, and I would show up somewhere without appropriate clothing. Right, a fairly okay time of year to do this travel roulette thing, and um, I I was on social media. I was like documenting my my trip to the airport, asking people for suggestions. Where should I go? People were like, "Oh, you should go to uh, Bolivia." And I was like, "Oh, I forgot my passport at home, so let's try again." U.S. destinations only, and I ended up booking a ticket to Austin, Texas, place oh, I had okay. never been before, right. and. Um, And it turned out to be probably a better trip than I ever could have planned. Mm. There's just so many serendipitous things that happened um, that, that I don't think would have occurred had I tried to plan every single step of the way. Do you think that like if someone, is it something that you need to experience yourself or is something that if you were to sell someone on Trevor Roulette, how would you do that? <laughs> I mean, like I, I think it's, it was just a really good lesson, at least for me. Cause I find that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so side note, um, I'm, I would say I'm a very risk averse person. Hence that's why I like planning and having a plan and all those different things. And yet, um, having that type of mindset comes with its own limitations. And so I think the, the act of doing travel roulette taught me that even though sometimes we're hardwired to fear uncertainty, Mm. 
because of some bad things that might happen. Uh, The flip side of that is that we forget to be in awe of the wonderful things that could happen when we Mm. lean into uncertainty. So it is the the dichotomy between uncertainty and possibility, Mm. what you're trying to get at over here, hey? It sounds like it. Or I mean, like, I think uncertainty... Uncertainty is just not knowing what's going to happen, right? But yeah. I think sometimes uncertainty also, people pair uncertainty with risk. Mm. Right? There's like negative, the possibility of bad things mm-hmm. versus also seeing that it's connected to, like you said, possibility, the 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 potential mm. for good things. And so uncertainty yeah. itself is actually How do you balance that, neutral. Then, you know? How do you think about as you make certain decisions, like what could be... You know, like, I mean, risk is important in that sense. You should think of it as you're making financial decisions. Right. <laughs> so yes. how do you, how do you bucket uh, decisions into, hey, this might be in the category of like, you might want to be a bit more uncertain and lean in a bit more versus what are the different buckets of decisions where uh, you might want to be a bit more risk averse, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, um so when I talk to people about decisions, I always bring it back to the three elements of any decision. So there are your objectives, like what mm-hmm. is it that you want to achieve in the outcome? There are your options. So what are the various courses of action you can choose among? And then mm-hmm. what information do you have on how those options might deliver on your objectives? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I think about uncertainty and risk, Again, it's looking at, sure, uncertainty, which is in the information bucket or lack of information, is um, it can point to either negative, like potential downsides or potential upsides. Right. And I always connect it back to, well, what are your objectives in the end? Sometimes we'll get scared off by, you know, downsides that are categorized Mm. as downsides by like external people but may not necessarily Mm -hmm. be a downside or like may not necessarily be related to what our key priorities are. Um, Right. Okay. So in that sense, we bring it back to traveling roulette. So the idea of traveling roulette is that you, uh, the upside is that you get to have personal growth and, you know, objective is that. And uh, perhaps the cherry on top of the cake is, you know, uh, learning a new way of traveling and experiencing all in the world that you never thought you could. And it's a pretty cheap way to experience all all that said. So if that's the upside, then leaning into um, the the uncertainty, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there isn't really that much downside because like what could really potentially happen is having a bad holiday. So, you know, uh, it's just a a couple of days uh, and you will have internet at the next place and uh, you'll be fine. I mean, it's just a bad holiday. So it's not as bad and the potential outside is greater. So in that sense, for that category of traveling, it would have been better to lean in a little bit more to the uh, risks and to the uncertainty and also to the possibility. Right. I'm going to pull us out on this philosophical thing. We went like, really deep into yeah, the yeah. stuff really fast. Well, okay. So if you if you have your um, if you have a, your your closest friends and your colleague, well, I would go to them and ask them, hey, um, what is Michelle's superpower? You know, what do you think they would tell me? It's funny because, like, I would 
I would want people to say, oh, her analytics. Uh But I've asked this question of people before and they've said my enthusiasm. Oh. And so... I I mean, like enthusiasm, that's not a bad thing. Or like, I guess I, I forget that that's, that's, uh, that's a positive. And maybe that's um, in the grand scheme of this work, I guess that also makes sense because as a coach, what it is that I hold open for people is, you know, possibility of, you know, what, what may come. And that requires a little bit of like enthusiasm and positivity as opposed to like the analytical rigor of walking people through decisions. I wonder how does that look like, you know? I get, I... Yeah, I... <laughs> that's why I gave you the answer in, in that way, because I, I also don't quite know, but I've heard it multiple times. Like I was talking to, I was talking to Avraham buyers, you know, the like community manager and like uh, alt MBA coach. Um, and I remember he, what were we talking about? I think we were talking about either like me writing more about decision engineering or me like embarking on this like podcast adventure um, about decisions. And he's like, well, one thing that I've come to know about you Michelle, it's that like there's a certain energy about you and I want to make sure that whether I'm reading something or listening to something, I can feel your smile. I was like, oh, and that's interesting. I just, I just wonder uh, if that is just one of those things where um, it's like being open or, you know, emotional labor, where it is because you can't pack a dollar value to it. That's why, you know, people don't say it a lot, but actually you wish the person who's serving you at the restaurant have actually some empathy uh, not reading off a script and but that is that makes a difference between like a nine out of ten to a ten out of ten right and so i do you maybe like enthusiasm might be the sort of tiebreaker yeah maybe like enthusiasm or care or i mean one thing that i've been hearing from a number of my clients recently is just like how much it how much it feels like i know them even though we may have been working together for like a month only or something but like I know like the core of them it's like I I, I I mean like do you think you are good at that or do you think it's just it's like a unconscious superpower or do you think you work actively at that that's a great question maybe it's an unconscious one since I it's like it's something I definitely would not have anticipated people would say would have said about me and I'm surprised that it like keeps coming up. Like I have to hear it from other people because it's not something that I would have said otherwise. Whereas actually like the analytical piece, even though I naturally think in terms of frameworks and buckets and like all of those things, that is also something that I've actively honed over time. So maybe it's more top of mind. Mm. Yeah. So, so you will probably be able to teach more about the framework stuff than to teach people about enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but on, on that note, on on that note, on um, care and you know people understanding and and thinking that they really that you understand them is something that I've been uh, 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 working on as well. And in fact, uh, I didn't know it was something that it was necessary or like a, a thing that could be developed until uh, 
uh, maybe a couple of years, uh, just this recent years. And um, one of the interesting aside um, that <laughs> I learned from nonviolent communication, I, I do not know whether I'm attributing it to the right thing, uh, is when I, when I talk to my parents and they keep telling me the same thing and they just keep nagging at me. And so what I learned from this thing uh, is that what you got to do is just to say after they finish what they say, just, hey, could I, you know, um, um, repeat what you just say so I get it right, you know, I understand it. And then they go and repeat what they say. And then uh, I'm going to summarize and repeat what they say until, um, until, and then until you finish and you say, does it sound like what you're trying to say to me? And then only after <laughs> you do that, they were, you realize that they actually do not repeat again and again what they want to say. I was like, that's really interesting. About that. Well, because I mean, at the end of the day, People like one of the things that I've learned from coaching is that at the end of the day, people just want to be seen, understood, and met where they are. And maybe the the repetition was coming because they didn't felt feel one of those things until you're like, so let me let me recap what I'm hearing you say. Is this what it is? And and I think one of the things that I also learned is that you don't need to, you can recap, but you don't need to agree. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think every time there was a miscommunication is because I disagree and then I voice out my dis- disagreement and then they feel that I don't understand their, their chain of logic. This is, you know, you can then after st- stating what they say and then, and then repeating to them, is that right? Then they say yes. Then you can, you know, ask them if they want to hear your opinion, which <laughs> maybe they don't. <laughs> That's fine. Actually, on a note on actually parenting and, you know, us having Asian parents, although we live worlds apart, um, in your 20s, uh, and I heard over and over again, it's on the previous interview I've done, when you hear the word a good job, you know, what were the jobs that came to mind in your 20s <laughs> and why? I mean, it's interesting because I feel like it goes back even further than that. I think okay. like in, in grade school when I heard good job or what were the acceptable acceptable and this is like I have to say that my my dad's parenting style very different from my mom's parenting style so I'm thinking Mm. more about my dad like okay going out and getting a good job was going out and getting into medicine so being a doctor or a nurse there are a lot of Filipino nurses um yes that's right uh, or being a lawyer Mm. and like engineer wasn't even really on his radar, but like once I decided on that path, he was like, okay, okay, that's, that seems fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And how has that sort of played out um, um, for you? And, and, and I guess why, why do you think he say, he say, I mean, like, why do you think those are the stuff that he say, like, you know, the category? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think at least, um, and I'll just speak to the, like Filipino immigrant community in the mm. U.S. and maybe some other like Asian immigrant communities here, uh, there's there there's value placed on what are some very secure and high paying jobs, mm. right? and I think medicine, law were both thought of as okay, very secure and also high paying mm. and well known. Um, even though there's, you know, a, a like an entire plethora of different jobs out there that also uh-huh. fit the you know, relatively secure and high paying 
yeah. criteria, although like security is even just something that I think is going away in general, just due to the nature of the economy. But, you know, thinking back to my parents' generation, that that hadn't, ha- that disruption hadn't happened yet. Like my dad has worked for the same organization my entire life. Like he's coming up in a couple of years, he'll have his 40 year anniversary there. And if, and then the same question asked to you now, um, what are the jobs that come to mind and why? Like, what is a good job? Um, and I feel like this is, this is, this seems more in line with what my mom's thinking probably is. And like a good job is one that, that pays the bills. Like, you know, doesn't leave us um, without means to live life the way that we want, but also is one that has an impact on the world. Like one of the things that I learned from my mom, or at least like the way that she raised us is, the reason we are here on earth is to share our gifts with others. But layered on top of that, if I were to also add my own flavor, like as I'm thinking about like, what would be a good job if jobs actually exist still for my kids, you know, 20 years from now, I'd want them to, again, yeah, be able to financially support themselves and the lifestyle that they want to have and be able to make a positive impact and be happy. Mm, so I guess so. You have that third layer where it's the happy piece, right? Mm-hmm. Versus you know, so so that would be more financially stable, and then you add on the mom piece, which is financially stable plus um, making an impact, and then you add on the Michelle piece, which is, and also at the same time be happy. Yeah. And yeah, how did that? How did that evolve actually um, throughout the time? And I guess maybe. As you tell me the answer, you could within the different chapters of your work life into that mm-hmm. answer, and sort of like tell me a bit about the series of events or jobs that happened that sort of make you change your mind along the way. Yeah. So as a kid, I was always good at math and science, and again, my dad was just like, "You should, you know, you should go to this like really great school that's really close to home and be a doctor or a lawyer because it had, I mean, that Stanford University has a very good." med school and law school. And he's just like, Oh, um, that'd be great. And so, I mean, like, fortunately I, I got into that school. So that was nice being close to home and, um, chose to study engineering. And the different, as I was learning about the different disciplines, I heard about, um, well, uh, what used to be industrial engineering at Stanford is now management science and engineering. And someone described it to me as the engineering of efficiency. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. The engineering of optimization. And there's a sub-concentration there called decision engineering. That's eventually where I spent most of my studies. Um, but I was like really focused on the just like the the intellectual pursuit. I thought was super interesting. Ooh, optimization, making things like better, faster, cheaper, like I, what comes to mind is like that Kanye song, Stronger. <laughs> but anyways. Yeah, okay, yeah, I know that song. Actually. <laughs> um, and what I found was that a, a lot of the people in that major were choosing to go into business. And I had no idea, like the corporate world, I had no idea what that looked like. They were going and becoming investment bankers or consultants. And, you know, I was like, investment banking, what's that? And they're like, oh, it's working like 110 hours a week. It's like, nope, no, thank you. Uh, <laughs> 
and then it's like, what's consulting? And someone said, well, it's going around solving problems for you know, other companies. And I said, oh, that sounds kind of neat. And, and so that's where I, where I started my career. Uh, I started my career in management consulting. And so I was like, hey, dad, I got this job. I can like... Let's check the box of your the debt, you know. Financial or at least like the, the financial stability. Like yeah. I had a good salary, was yeah. living out on my own. To this day, my dad does not understand what I did as a consultant. Oh. Like, but okay, well, as long as long as you can pay your own bills and you seem to be doing okay. fine. And you put yeah, away and, money you know, in your retirement and I'm like, yeah, 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 dad. Like, it's fine. Okay. Um, but I as much as I loved consulting and super interesting, like problem solving, I I found that I wanted to be able to really see the impact of my recommendations and my work. And when you're in consulting sometimes, uh, or at least at some some firms, you deliver the recommendation, but you may not stay on to see the implementation. And I missed that. Like I wanted to see what happened. Did it work? Did it not work? What, how did they deal with that? Uh, and so at that point in time, I switched. Oh, So you are over in um, consulting, like a sort of like a, uh, uh, external consultant sort of firm is that what it is right. and then they send mm-hmm. you in with a problem statement in mind and then you do yeah. the research and then you get the insights and you do the recommendation uh, and and then but then you didn't see the see through the implementation right because then we're put on another project with another client different problem mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is really great for learning in those first few years but again there's part of me that craved being able to see the impact of my work uh, so then I switched to going into industry. Uh, I was in brand management at um, at Del Monte Foods, which my dad was super proud of because he's like, I know this product. Like I've known it from the Philippines. I know it here. I can point to it to the grocery store. If I tell my friends, they know it. Like finally, I know what my kid does. And I'm like, okay. That's good. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so another check and still like financially stable. So dad was really happy. Right. Um, but even even then, there's like this, I was able to see more of the impact of my work, learned a ton, but there's still a part of me that, um, you know, it's like hearkening back to like my mom's voice about, you know, but what impact is this having on people? Or are you able to still spend your time outside of work, you know, like being able to serve the community in some way? Mm. And and I'm curious, you know, how does that come about for you? Um, mm. You know, as you go about taking this job, and you know, um, how does that surface? Is it, do you, you know, does it come true because you have a hard day at work, or uh, yeah? Well, I think it started coming through in in the side projects. I noticed myself getting into. Okay, uh, interesting. So one. One of the things that I, I guess I haven't mentioned so far was when I was growing up, all I wanted to be was a teacher. Like when I was in first grade, I want to be a first grade teacher. Second grade, I want to be a second grade teacher. Like this is what I would come home, like telling my mom. And it wasn't until I had a teacher, I think a junior high, who told me, don't do that, Michelle. That would be a waste of your brain. Oh. I remember I went home and cried because I was like this, and this was an excellent teacher. And you know, I I spent some time in public education. I now understand where that sentiment was coming from. In the U.S., teachers are not valued; they are not paid what they are worth. And so I get it now. But back then, I was just like, but she didn't tell you. 
She didn't tell you the reason why she. I no, guess she just like said, "Don't do it. It'll right. be a piece of your brain." Right, and you didn't dig further, and I guess you know. Uh, I don't know. I was a kid. Was yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course. <laughs> Things you say to kids, you know, you can. Right. And and so that's why I was like, well, I'm good at math and science. I guess I'll be an engineer. So that's that's the backstory to how I landed on that. Um, but I still noticed whenever I was at work at these various organizations, there's part of me that still wanted to help people develop. Like I remember um, I would I became a trainer in addition to being like a client-facing consultant at the consulting firm. And then one of my pet projects uh, when I was at Del Monte was creating onboarding materials or being able to put together uh, training for new hires or that type of thing because I felt it was important. Um, And so at some point I was thinking, well, you know, what, what would it look like if I were to actually go into the education space? You know, why not? Why not try it? And if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to the corporate world. Fine, but yeah, I'm young. What would it look like to do that? But not as a teacher, because uh, given like after years in the corporate space, I wanted to find out like how else can I use the skills that I've developed Mm. to further the cause in education. And so after going to business school, I pivoted into public education, but on the operations side, like again, how, um, in the U S again, public education, not, not funded very well. Um, Mm. (laughs) and so making the most of every single dollar is really important. So having a background in, in the engineering of optimization was useful. Yeah. Uh, but then, I mean, that was great. And so I feel like like with every single career pivot, I was learning more about what I needed and, you know, going out and seeking that and like adding that into what my work looked like. And so, you know, from in consulting, it's like, I love problem solving, but I also want to see more of the direct impact of my problem solving. So then I went into industry and I was like, okay, this is really great. I get to see the big picture. I get to see all the interconnections. And yet I still want to have more of a social impact and not just impact on the stock price. And then I went to education and I was like, okay. And it was great. Like was being able to make an impact in this like social realm. Um, but there's, and got to see it. It was super fulfilling. And then I was getting to the age when I knew I, I wanted to have kids. Like I got uh-huh. engaged, got married. Yeah, and yeah, especially yeah. among my, my business school classmates, I looked around both people who are in private sector and public sector. Yeah. And like the, I just didn't, I didn't see the life that I wanted to live. Again, I credit mm. my mom with this because she was a working mom, but she was also a very present, encouraging force in my life. And I wanted to be that for my kids. Mm. Uh, but I wasn't really sure, like, how, how does that work? If I have kids, I don't want to like face this existential decision of, okay do I go back to work and then I don't see my kids except for like one hour before they go to sleep every day? Or is it, is it like that in public education? Is that? Um, it's like that in the U S Oh, no matter what industry you work in. If you huh. work in an office in the U S um, you know, like uh, especially like for people in my demographic who, 
you have gone to business school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 50 plus hour work weeks are the norm. And on top of that, you know, however long your commute is in and out. And, you know, there's no no subsidized childcare, very little maternity leave, if any. I live in California, the most progressive state. So we have 12 weeks of maternity leave. There are a lot of states that have zero. And so, um, yeah, like I, I didn't like the options that I saw. And so, again, like thinking back to the training in decision engineering, well, if I don't like the options that I see, is there anything I can do to create new options? And so that's when I started thinking about, well, what would it look like to go the entrepreneurial route? And I mean, I never, again, risk-averse person, never would have thought about going the entrepreneurial route, going and like doing something on my own. But again, given my objectives, my objectives were to be able to have a certain type of lifestyle when I had kids which would be easier if I had flexibility of location, flexibility of hours. It was worth the risk of trying something new and different in order to try. Yeah. 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 And so that's how you landed. So you landed on the idea of entrepreneur route and, and how did, there's so many things you can do now. Now you're like a, a paradox of choice. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, again, in thinking about, well, what, are the, what is the skill set that I have? What is it that people could trust me with? I mean, I could have just become like an independent consultant working on various types of projects. But again, there's that part of me that had a passion for developing people. And uh, it was actually in business school that I also got some training as a leadership communications coach. And my mentor, two weeks before graduation, sat me down and essentially was just like, oh, you want, what kind of job are you getting? I'm like, I want to go into public education on operation, in the operations side. She's like, okay, why have you never thought about coaching as a profession? Because you seem to be really good at it. And then, of course, in my head, I'm like, Arena, why did you tell me this like two years ago when I started business school instead of two weeks before graduating? But that stuck with me. And, and that was one of the things uh, that I thought was worth a try. Huh. So it was the low seed that was planted years ago uh, that got surfaced up. Well, then here, here you are, yeah. the coaches of coaches. <laughs> if, I could, if you could go back to... Your, your younger you and for all those who are starting the career in consulting, you know, and give them a little pep talk about what you wish you knew. What would you have told the younger Michelle? Um, at least sort of plant the seeds so, you know, yeah. like they could at least explore that. Right. Like I think I would have told, if I think back to like 22-year-old Michelle a year mm-hmm. into like working full-time, I would have told her that no matter what I thought, what I was doing at that moment would not be what I do for the rest of my career. And and there was going to be no way of knowing what the rest of the path might look like. So you might as well get comfortable with that fact or with the not knowing now. Right. So basically just... How how would you sell that? Because that's so 
You know, like you had on the, on the I also think like if I yeah. if I went back in time to tell younger self that she would have been terrified. She'd be like, What are you talking about? Like my dad is in the same job for the last 40 years. What are you talking about? <laughs> I just need the right plan. What are you talking about? I just need a plan. And I would have been like, you, like, you can come up with whatever plan you want, but the best thing that you can do is to learn how to operate even uh, how to operate even after throwing the plan out the window. Right. Interesting. And well, like maybe, maybe not on that, like sort of like bigger like meta note but more so like just like a couple of questions for her or, or whoever that's going to consulting to sort of think on i think i i would have told her because it's true when i went into consulting i didn't have any other plan afterwards it's just like okay i'm gonna go in and i didn't really think about you know, what would it, what does it actually look like to make a career out of consulting? I just knew I needed to get a good job, right? Let me get this good job. Good job. Check. Um, so I guess I, I would have asked the question, you know, what, what is it that you're trying to achieve in this, you know, two to three year period of your career? And how will you know when this job is no longer serving that? What do you think, I mean, would you think that your younger self would have just said, I just want to be happy and get paid and my dad kind of likes this job, so that's cool. Yeah, maybe. But I think there's that second part of the question, right? And like, and how will you know when this is no longer serving that purpose? Because I think that's where, that's the part that a lot of people forget, right? They go into something and it's working, it's working until all of a sudden it definitely is not. And they wonder like, how did I get to this point? I just want to dig, dig in a little bit further uh, uh, on that with you, because I feel that, I feel that that is a lot more an emotional thing. And that's a learned thing that you never knew you thought you wanted. When you first started and chose consulting, it was, sort of the clear path in terms of like, it still paid the bill at the end of the career, right? Which is more mm-hmm. of a check mark. It's still one of those career choice that your dad would have been okay with. Mm-hmm. And for the most part of society, it's a great job, mm-hmm. right? And if, and you, it seems like when you went into consulting, that was a couple of check marks that has been ticked. But at the end of the consulting, there seems to be new checkboxes that appear, but that wasn't previously there in the first right. place. Yeah. Does, that sound, does that resonate? For sure. Because, I mean, when I went into it, it was, it was interesting, right? It was interesting. I wouldn't even say it was interesting enough. I thought it was like, oh, I'm going to solve problems. I'm going to run around solve problems. I love solving problems. This is great. I'm gonna learn a ton. Yeah. I'm going to like build up a whole bunch of like freaking flyer miles, blah. Um, and then it wasn't until I went through the process of, of being in the job that I realized, oh, wait, there are also other things that are important to me. And who knows if they were things that were important to me when I started or not, or whether they were needs that evolved over time. Right. But I think that's the thing. Like, And you sort of knew about it as the... Uh, at the site jobs or the little site projects that you t- took on, uh, being a little bit more attractive to you than your actual real job. Do you think that is sort of one of those signals that you saw about that? 
I think I think there are a few different things. I don't think I could have known ahead of time like what. So, in my coaching, I I find that a lot of people want to have an impact, right? But what does that actually mean? Like like what like what type of impact on whom along what type of timeline? Like how what is the proximity to the point of impact you need? Like there's a lot to be unpacked there that I couldn't have known at the very beginning until I actually was in it. And so I think there's that. There's also a degree of, you know, I was learning a ton, just like that was broadly applicable in the beginning. And then over time, what I was learning was only setting me up for a much narrower set of opportunities. Um, So there are a number of things that evolved over time such that by the end, it's like, oh, this isn't actually leading me in the direction I want to go anymore. That's interesting. So I then so I think then the meta advice would not be so that you know those you didn't check your checkbox as you went in because you actually did check your checkbox. But maybe perhaps a more nuanced advice might be to create a practice where you actually listen to the three areas of intelligence put in your words, right? Um, where you have a journaling practice or a, you know a silent practice where you're like check in, hey, does it still really you know it's my job still doing the thing that it wants to do? Because that's how I that's how I see most people who got into a couple of career choices that they 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 got into and coming back to one of the things that you actually talked a little bit about maybe you want to whip that in as I bring it up is the outcome versus decision. So that seems that it is still a good decision yeah. that maybe the outcome isn't good and that that shouldn't be conflated with the decision that you made. And maybe right. you want to expound on that a little bit yeah. so people know the difference. Well, I, I want to go back to what you were saying about the whole practice, right? I think sometimes, especially especially people when they're young, we get lulled into this belief that, oh, um, yeah, I just need to make this one big decision and I just need to make the right decision at this one decision point and then I'll be fine. As opposed to, I think when you're getting at with the the idea of, of ongoing or like periodic practice is checking in because, you know, every, every six, well, every day, but every six months, every 12 months, every 18 months, we can create a decision point for ourselves. Does it still make sense for me to continue down this path? Or should I pivot from this path, right? And so getting out of the mindset of it's just one big giant decision that I need to do right and then I'm good to, you know, what are the smaller sequential decisions that I actually need to be engaging with over time? Uh, And then going to to what you were saying um, about the quality of a decision versus the quality of an outcome, again, like I, I made a good decision, you know, at that entry point of my career, because, you know, given the boxes that I knew about, given the objectives I had, yeah, consulting, it, it checked the boxes, it met a certain threshold for the objectives that I had. And then, and then things changed. Like, you know, the, um, the things I was learning were not the things that I wanted to be learning anymore. Or like, oh, I learned that, uh, impact really mattered to me, but in a different way than I was experiencing on the job. And just because 
I mean, what comes up to mind is like, I have a really close friend who after business school basically landed her dream job, like dream job, checked all the things that she could have possibly wanted. It was abroad. It was like at a startup. It was in a location that she wanted. It had responsibilities that she wanted to do. She would be learning the things she wanted to learn. And a year after it was like nightmare job. And I remember at that point in time, uh, it can be easy to think like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? I must have made the wrong decision. And and that leads us down like this whole kind of like emotional spiral of like either guilt or shame or whatever it may be. But the thing is, it may not have been that we made a bad decision. It's just that the outcome and like the uncertainties played out in a way that that like manifested in a way that we didn't like. And so um, I always use the example of, because I have kids, right? Like my, my son, he's three and a half. He loves going to the park, loves going to the park. Ma, can we go to the park? And, and now we have, we have like one of those echo dots and we'll, we'll ask like Amazon, oh, what is the weather like today? <laughs> uh, or we'll look it up online and it'll say, yeah. oh, you know, especially right now, 20% chance of rain. Right. Well, that's not yeah. that much of a chance. So you know, we go to the park, it's like three blocks away and then it starts raining. I mean, going to the park though, wasn't a bad decision, made the best decision we could given the information we had. It just so happens that things outside of our control ended up in a way that was not ideal, but I'm not going to blame myself for the fact that it rained. I didn't decide for it to rain. And more importantly, I'm faced with a new decision point. Okay. It's raining. What are we going to do? Do I let him play around in the puddles? Or do I scoop them up when we go home? Correct me if I'm getting it right. So making the decision to go to the park was actually the right decision. And you would still have made it uh, if, you know, uh, if you were to do it all over again. So more so, the, the reason why people should tease that apart being, you know, outcome, the quality outcome and quality decision is that you shouldn't beat yourself up because you make a bad decision. Because the truth is, you actually make a good decision based on what you know, mm-hmm. right? And and the outcome might turn out badly, but it's not because of the process of the decision. And yeah. so you so basically, it's sort of like an act of God kind of situation right. where you, you shouldn't be unhappy with yourself and the, the choices you make. Yeah, we shouldn't beat ourselves up for the things that we couldn't have known or couldn't mm. have controlled. Mm. Yeah. And the learning point could have, I mean, maybe not for the park example, the learning point perhaps uh, uh, could have been how could you have implemented a better process of, you know, making decisions um, if, you know, you're going to update your process a little bit as you go about your career, right? Because, hey, before then it was three checkbox. Now there was like this other two things. So you want to add that into your decision metrics uh, tree thing. Maybe. I mean, like on one hand, yes, you can use that opportunity to see, are there ways mm-hmm. that you can improve your process? One of the most recent uh, decision-making books out there is Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. Yeah. Which is a fantastic book. Like I love the fact that in her book, she makes it very clear. One of the first things that she calls out to people is that the quality of the decision is separate and distinct from the quality of the outcome, right? Mm. There is often a... Um, component of the outcome that we cannot control. And thus, right, which is why you 
Yeah. Preach, yeah. Right. Uh, but I find that a lot of the rest of her book is all about like, well, how can we get better at betting or how can we get better at predicting the future? There's also other books that are about making better decisions, but really at the core about like, how can we get better at predicting the future? Mm. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say the path to becoming a good decision maker is not actually to try to get better or like to try to become, like I said, clairvoyant. Like the ideal is not to try to get to a point where you can predict what the future is. Hmm. The path to becoming a better decision maker is learning how can you still make good decisions in the midst of uncertainty when there are definitely going to be times when you cannot know. Yeah. So what would be like in, maybe in career or, you know, investing or, or I don't know, poker, like what would be some examples that, that, you know, about that being clairvoyant in the sense that, you know, you disagree. Okay. In poker. And it's so funny because I do not gamble because in university I had to do so many problem sets and homework assignments on calculate like probabilistic analysis and calculating the chances of like things coming up in roulette or things coming up in like poker and because you can to an extent if you're keep, keeping track of like what cards are coming up you can calculate the probability of things which is fine and great if you could do that and you know it's really great that right now we have computers that can you know calc if you have the right numbers calculate the outcomes of various decision trees and that's great when that applies. But I would say that in most human decision-making situations, we don't have probabilities like that. We don't have a history of um, like how these things have come about such that we can even assign probabilities to things. And so like my, at least like my stance on decision-making is more about like, how can you get very clear about what you're objectives are? How can you do a better job of making sure you have a good set of options to choose among? And how do you get more comfortable with making decisions in the face of uncertainty by also thinking about like, well, what are, what are the other decision points you may have after this point in time? So I, I think let me try to like re, re like try to uh, summarize what you say. But w what you mean is that, say for example, like as someone going through uh, making career choices, right? They don't know whether they like consulting or not. <laughs> no one started knowing that. Uh, yes, you can ask people who are in who are consultants who have been there for a long time about how they feel about their career. But you only truly know if you like it if you go do it. Mm -hmm. So, and you don't know if you don't. <laughs> is that what is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, like and there's like, the, there's a muscle of developing a comfort with not knowing. Right, 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 right. But that doesn't discount the fact that maybe you should still go talk to them. Yeah. Oh yeah, but, for sure. But you know, don't talk to a hundred people. Right, that's a waste <laughs> of time. But talk to three. You yeah. know, and, and move on because the time of you making a decision that you being stuck is also that also matters as a, a good decision, right? That right. You make to and have a bias towards action. I mean, that's why that's why I love yeah, okay. uh, the book, The Lean Startup and like lean startup principles, right? Because yeah. it's all about how do you how do Iterate. you create 
um, iterations or like go through the process of learning what you need to learn and then having that inform a subsequent decision yeah. as fast as possible. Yeah. Right? And, but, and also while expending the least, the minimal amount of resources possible. Yeah. 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 That I, I, I truly agree uh, with you. Um, I want to know a little bit about what are the things left on the cutting room floor, you know, as you chose your uh, coaching career. Is there anything? Um, tell me more about what you mean by that. Well, you talk about options, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, let's try out different options. And we talk about entrepreneurship. So that is, you could set up a banana stand or sell Filipino food at the food site <laughs> at the street, you know? You know what's really funny about you right, saying that? that? <laughs> like, okay. um, so I have a good friend actually from that very first consulting job and we used right. to travel to Asia again. Like uh-huh. we used to travel um, every year. And when we both went off to business school, I remember we told each other, okay, hey, if this business school thing doesn't work and we don't like go get like real jobs after school, we should just open up like a curry stand next to like some big university and that's just going to be what we do. Oh yeah, that totally <laughs> sells. <laughs> but is that so is there any what is was that what do you do you give serious thought into it no way to embark um, on this i mean like that that was just kind of like a fun one um i mean i think there like a pop-up were, like. yeah there are like other other ideas around um like do i do i just become a consultant with the skill set that i had and so like i had a yeah. skill set in marketing and also then in like operations in the public school environment so do I just go do that as a way of like making money or um what else uh I mean there's a cutting room floor is interesting because coaching itself is just there's a lot of different options even within coaching right like there's a lot of different type of coaching there's a lot of um different ways that coaching or teaching or whatever facilitation can happen. Um, I mean, interestingly enough, I'd say continuing, continuing my work with all MBA was one of the things that was on the cutting room floor, because that's one of the things I said no to mm. when I became pregnant with my son. And I was just like, mm. at the time it was a startup. We were still figuring things out. It was like really time intensive and just yeah. like intense in general. And I was like, I can't, like this is not how I want to, um, or I was about to say this is not how I want to live out my pregnancy. But also, this was not what this was for. Like all of this was for being able to spend more time with my kids when they were young, uh-huh. and yeah. continuing my involvement in the way that it was going um, yeah. with all MBA was not going to fulfill that objective. Right, which means it's like a fifty-hour work week back again but at, right. but at yeah. least now you, like you in the you, virtual you work. world but still correct right right yeah but you are there but you're not there right you're there right. because physically but you're not yeah. there and it wasn't necessarily uh, like a flexible schedule either because we we were like on in slack monitoring things 24 7 just because oh, yeah. we didn't know how people were going to be reacting to various things yeah especially at the start of a startup it is yeah. uh yeah, you're writing the rule book and the playbook as it goes. So you, you, you are also at the same time monitoring, at the same time testing things, at the same time getting feedback, and then doing the loop, the lean startup thing over and over again. So yeah. it is pretty intense. I can see that. 
Wow. What less was since we're on the topic on coaching and for any of people who are, you know, thinking of being a coach, I think maybe just sharing your experience of how you get your not first, not second, but maybe the third, fourth, and fifth client. I think it would be interesting because first and second, yeah, friends, whatever, colleagues. Yeah, I know. It's just like, whoever. Yeah, yeah, but like after that, you know, who is your first client that you like, you don't, do not know, like you never know of, mm-hmm. personally. I mean, like the first step, uh, like you said, first and second client often going to be within your own personal network because they know you, they trust you. And, and that's the thing about coaching, right? It's such a high trust relationship a very personal relationship too. And I think in order, gosh, I'm trying to even think back of like who, who they were. I think in order to get to that point, um, I had to be very clear in who I was. I had to be very clear. And I feel like these are all things that are very commonly talked about in the Akimu community. Like who is that? Who is it for? What is it for? Right. Um, to the point where, my network could go out and tell others about that, right? Because like those first few clients, you're just telling your friends, they already know you and they're just like, sure, you can help me, whatever. Um, But being able to be clear enough about like the who is it for, what is it for, how do I help? uh, And what does that look like for someone else to tell someone else? Um. And it took a lot of, at least for me, iteration to get to that point. But that's when... A couple of your old websites. <laughs> I know, they're like out there. In the, in the, gosh, oh, so embarrassing. The web, like the internet never dies, never goes away. <laughs> well, so how, like, what sort of process and then how long did you have to go through that, you know, to get to, like, uh, a place where you're happy. I mean, the positioning and, you know, the messaging that you're happy with and what a couple of few iterations that, you know, that, that happened. Um, well, I mean, let's see, I guess the, the way in which I went about seeking out clients outside of my own personal network was very much through um, like leading my own workshops and because I'm someone who enjoys speaking, right? Like I perfectly comfortable again, like wanted to be a teacher uh, at the front of the room. And so I um, had a number of workshops, both in like IRL in real life, and then also in the virtual world. And those are the types of things that my friends could post, promote. and you know, people. Right. It's like meetup.com kind of stuff. Um, I mean, I, I think I did a lot on just like Facebook and LinkedIn at the time. Um, and and it was interesting to hear back. I mean, like the feedback process was huge, like being able to ask people, you know, what is it that they got out of this? Like, what what did they want to hear more about? What is it that they wanted to learn? And what is it that they wanted to work with me specifically on? Yeah. Could you give me an example of like how you go about doing the LinkedIn thing? Because I think um, that's a pretty good process for just anyone to want to like try it out. So is it like a webinar sort of thing um, where, you know, you go riff about on 10, like, you know, an hour webinar where you riff about something on 15 minutes and then, you know, you, I, the Q&A thing uh, and how many people are there? When I talk about social media is really just, that's where I promoted whatever it was that I was doing. So if I was going to do a live 90 minute workshop, 
I put it on Facebook and had my friends share it with their networks. Or I put it on LinkedIn and just had my friends share it. And so I'm not talking about doing anything native to the platform itself. And also I'd say like, I'm not the person to ask about like the nitty gritty of, you know, like, do I do a 15 minute whatever, or like a 30 day video challenge? Um, I mean, literally I did, I, I think I, I'm trying to remember, did I do it via Zoom or Google Hangouts? But I just remember doing webinars and live events. And the, the webinars are probably an hour long, live events. Uh, sometimes I had 90 minute ones. Sometimes I had half day ones. Um, usually the half day ones were attended by people who had been to the 90 minute ones. And so um, it, was, it was just like trying certain things in a medium that I was comfortable with. And I, I guess this is also a pretty, pretty good, I mean, it doesn't actually, the, the technology, Technology doesn't matter, right? It right. Zoom, it could be Google Hangout. Uh, but more so, I think the idea of, hey, go start something and, and let people try it out and, you know, take whatever you learn and put it in the format to, to teach people that and, you know, uh, and write a copy in a way where they'll be interested in signing up for giving, uh, donating your time. And then then that becomes, uh, if they are interested in the, the follow-up or, you know, hiring you, and that is like at least an introduction for people who do not know your work, uh, an easy way in, I guess. Right. I mean, I will say that I did spend a ton of time up front learning about how to have sales conversations. Because that is, um, I mean, that's that's probably the most important skill, second to being able to coach on whatever topic you're coaching. Because if you can't convince people, like if you can't, because a sales conversation is basically a, a decision conversation, right? Like a conversation around, is this a good fit? Do you want to work with me and pay me for the value that I can bring? And that's not actually a conversation that, most people, or I don't know, I'm not going to talk for most people. That's not a conversation that I was used to having. I have a background in marketing, but sales is very different. And um, the more that I doubled down on, like, how do I have that conversation with people and um, identify, like, what is the tension in their lives that can be resolved through working together? the uh, the more I guess the more successful I was at taking on clients yeah well I mean well you have the awareness thing and then now you lead on to the conversation I guess that's the piece that I guess it's the missing link that that's the conversion for you all right I, right. I guess I would just put it out there that like mm. I don't think anyone should underestimate the value of learning how to have sales conversations. Yeah, that's good. How will you, how do you go about like build it and they will come? No, no. Like, especially again, coaching, very individualized, very personal type of relationship. You're embarking on with someone. You're going to have to have a one-on-one conversation with people about whether they want to work with you. There's just no shying away from it. Could you, could you remind, I mean, I don't know if you remember yourself, how are you bad at having a sales conversation? Oh, and gosh. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, I mean, no, like, this is a good topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cause, you know, like, someone who's there, I, I think I'm good, you know? Well, I mean, first off, like, one of the ways that uh, one of the indicators 
of like not being good at sales conversations is if the the person does not know what the next step is. Like if you don't have a clear answer by the end, like yes, uh, no, let's follow up by X point in time, then you didn't get them to a decision point, right? So it's like either, yes, I want to work with you. No, this time is just like not right. Or, you know, I... I need more time to think about these specific things and we will follow up at this specific point in time. And I feel like like where where I was really bad in those conversations when I was bad was when I I wouldn't make the ask about, you know, well what is the next step or like what what is it that they wanted to decide? Cuz I think there's that fear of like I don't want to be pushy or da da. Again, like uh, and this is something that like I understand now part of my job as a coach is helping people get to clarity. And especially, you know, as someone with a decision engineering background in all other contexts, I love being able to get people to either that point of like, Oh, this is the decision, or these are the steps that these are the next steps I need to take to get to the point where I can make a decision. Um, but yeah, I remember early on, it's just like, uh, I felt all the like heebie-jeebies when it came to like, oh, sales conversation. Ah, I, ah right. <laughs> um, how how would you um, recommend for some people to go about learning um, how to do better at sales conversation? I mean, I feel like there's there's like just like a ton of resources out there. Again, like there are a lot of people out there who will teach people sales. I am not one of them. I- no, no, no. I mean, like, who are you point to? What is there any book or like anyone? Gosh, I don't even know. Cause I feel like there's probably some really great folks out there now that, that weren't around or like weren't really big five, seven years ago when I was like trying to learn this process. Yeah. And did you just go on the YouTube? Or oh, I mean, is that YouTube back then? <laughs> um, I mean, for me again, because I, I like, learning with a community. I sought out um, people who had like live events. Eventually I just like hired a sales coach uh, and she was someone who would actually train people who are very successful sale, like in, in industries where sales really matters. Like she used to train people who would sell timeshares and like, yeah, like I know, and I've been in those conversations. I'm like, Oh, I mean, I don't know how I feel about that, but I do as, as like, you know, the geeky person I am, like, I want to know the mechanics of what makes those conversations so successful. And then I can figure out which parts of that I'm comfortable (laughs) implementing for myself. I I will also just um, uh, give a footnote to people uh, learning about sales conversation is you need to separate the ickiness um, by the person, um, by the tactic. Because you don't need to implement every single Iki tactic you want. But just go out there and learn and know about all this thing. Because best case scenario, you know that they're applying on you and then you could do a role reversal, right? Um, so that's the worst case scenario. And so I feel that a lot of people, uh, at least from uh, when I first started, some of the people who are very Iki are actually really good. And you don't need to, if you can look past that, you can, that's actually a lot to learn. 
again, like I think it's it's all about learning what tools exist and then choosing which ones you want to use. Like I am not one of those people who's like, well, if you don't make a decision now, then well, this will never happen. Or like, oh, you know, but like if you buy it now, it's only like I don't I don't do that. But again, like it's useful to know that's a tactic and like what is it behind that 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 works and it's just like awareness. Yeah, um, like the psychological triggers that people put on you right. also. So you I mean you don't need to fall trap into that if you know someone would mm-hmm. do that on you. Uh cool. Okay. So I want to know a little bit about the most okay, so let's take coaching business entrepreneur out, but as just a coach. What are some of the most underrated skills to learn as a coach? How to sit still and be with the not knowing. Um, It's so interesting because, you know, sometimes, and especially because I find that a lot of people who are attracted to coaching, myself included, are people who want to make an impact on people, right? And so sometimes there can be this, this, urge to to be impactful or to be able to see that you're making an impact in every single session at every single moment. Uh, but that's just not going to happen every single time. And sometimes if, if we're too focused on, especially like the giving of advice or the trying to solve what challenge is coming up in the moment, we're not giving space to the other things that may come up if we were to sit in the silence. And I found that sometimes the the richest coaching sessions that I've had with some of my executive coaching clients, especially have been ones where for like the first 40 minutes out of the 60 minutes, I didn't know where, I didn't know where we were going to end up by the end. Um, But I was still willing to just be present with my client. Again, understand like that, what was most important was that they were seen, understood, and met where they are, and trust that you know by the end, I would see the kernel or the opening that then I could you know like offer a distinction that would be impactful for them. So how would like if you're talking about this forty minutes, right? How how would your old self do the conversation? And how does it look like, like when you do the conversation now? Mm. Again, old self, especially because my background was consulting, right? Solution oriented, problem solving. Um, you know, there may have been a an urge to try to drive toward, well, like how do we solve this right now? Or like what, you know, dig enough into the problem to understand what could be the solution, or maybe we brainstorm solutions, or who knows what, as opposed to letting like now knowing especially because I don't do one-off coaching like all of my engagements are six month minimum 12 session minimum because that's what I've noticed is required to be able to achieve the, the scale of change that some of my clients are seeking and so just trusting that you know throughout I'm continuing to learn about my client and their world you know, as, as whatever's coming up and that also uh, not all information is verbalized, being able to tune into what may be coming up for them, like in their body, 
probing around what's coming up emotionally or even sensing it on their face, probing where I think there's an opportunity and then being willing to wait to connect the dots and try to move things forward. Do you say that then when do you feel is the right time to sort of be instead of, you know, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more, be like, here's what I see, you know, when would you, when would you shift gears? How do you know when? Or you think it's more an art? <laughs> so I think I, it's I an know. art. Like I was yeah, actually okay, going to tell you, fair, it's fair. more about um, listening to the coaching fairies. <laughs> mm. <laughs> there, it sounds like so absurd, but one, one of my, um, one of the faculty members at New Ventures West actually like told me about this. Cause again, like I, my default is, and used to be, to be very solution oriented. Um, but she is just kind of like, just trust, trust that the coaching fairies are going to tell you what is the right thing to say and when. And so, and I think that's, that's part of the, the art that comes with the experience of coaching, just like being able to tune into what's appropriate. Mm. And do you have coaches yourself? Yes. Uh, well, yes, For right? Sure. Yeah. Sales coach, <laughs> that's right. You told me about that. Or, but also and, just like, uh, like I have my own personal development coach who is helping yeah. me work on my development. That's so interesting. Because you know, like this, this things, uh, so much of a US thing. Like in Asia, I think it's, not a lot of only forward-looking CEOs, entrepreneurs, or like people in a startup have coaches. Most do not. Yeah, so it is quite interesting. Um, and so, so since you have like a lot of experience with different coaches, right? Um, what do you think for you is the difference between someone who's good and someone who's great that you love? Gosh, I feel like it depends on what uh, what is the 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 coaching topic, right? Yeah. What is the coaching objective? Like if it's, if the coaching objective is to develop skills, right? Like I'm looking for someone who has experience training or getting people to be like the most, like, again, like the sales coach who trained people who sold timeshares, like, again, those people are very, very good at what they do. Um, But also someone who is able to, for like the skills-based type of coaching, someone who's able to be with a number of different type of learners, right? Because there are some people who are really good at coaching, um, at least like skill development in like, you know, maybe like a certain type of folks, but it may not have the, um, the uh, agility to be able to coach like someone with a different learning style or whoever. But that's like for skills development. I find that more of the coaching that I both do and benefit from now is more personal development. And the people who, I mean, the in that realm, the coaches I've interacted with who are really great are ones, ones who can, who I can feel the impact of even before they've said a word. Have you ever been in a room with a person like that? Mm -mm. It's like they're the way in which they carry themselves and the, 
the, and this is interesting. I feel, I find myself getting like really down the, the woo woo spectrum, which is I think like hard for me because I identify as an engineer, very kind of like other end of the woo woo spectrum. But, you know, there is something about someone who, who is able to operate from not just the cognitive realm. And so like some of the most masterful coaches I've seen are, yeah, ones where, where they can have an impact on someone's energy even before they've said a word and even within saying a single sentence. And it doesn't even matter what they're saying. Huh. Yeah. Well, I need to experience that one day for myself. Yeah, that's, that, that is fascinating. So, okay. So someone who also, um, so um, learn different learning styles, okay, it was easy to adaptable and also uh, people who um, don't be emotionally aware that they know how to position themselves to create the, the most impact. Do you say so? But again, like that's for two very different realms of coaching. And I think that's also an important distinction to make. There's, um, or at least like, especially in, in my background of training, there's a distinction between skills-based coaching, which is, um, they would say horizontal development versus um, developmental coaching, which is vertical. It's kind of like being able to... Um, it's like the difference between so horizontal, like skills-based coaching is kind of like, oh, like you're adding an app to your phone or your computer. It's like a new feature, new skill set. It, it does something new. Whereas developmental coaching is like changing the operating system. Like changing our values. Or, I, or like the, values the narrative. Like, uh, it can look in a lot of different ways, but if you think yeah. about it, it changes the way in which you are able to both operate and learn new skills as well interesting huh would you okay tell me more about this because i this is the first time a little bit this developmental coaching thing like how would you how do you know you need like okay you never need really uh, uh like what is the like what is the is there like a progression chart and you know do you know where you are on this chart based on like here I go take a you know minus brick test. Uh, you are level three. You want to go level four? There's a couple of things you you need. I would say not necessarily. It's just that. Um, okay, so here let me use this example because it also speaks to the evolution of my coaching practice as well. So when I started coaching, I was a career coach, helping people with career decisions, right? Like, and then also would tactically help them. So I'd help them understand, you know, what 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 were their objectives? What options might they have? How do they gather information? And you know, how do they get to the point of being on a new path? A very tactical after the exploratory phase. And so it may be like, oh, let me teach some of my clients would need the skill of, you know, how is it that you have, how do, how do you conduct networking conversations or whatever? Um, so that was a lot of like, or how do you, conduct a reflection on what's important to you. Like they could learn the skill, they could apply it later. It's a very skills-based. And yet for some of my clients, even after coming to clarity around what is it that they wanted to do and how they could go and be on that path and put themselves on that path, 
there is going to be, in order for them to really be successful there, they're required, there was a, they needed to like swap out the operating system because the way that they had come to learn skills and respond to like new situations or whatever was inherently in conflict with what they were trying to achieve. Hmm. Can you give me an example? Yeah. So for example, um, uh, okay. So sometimes we see this in leadership, right? Like um, let's say that, uh, okay, I'll just talk about one of my recent clients that I just wrapped up an engagement with. So she, she's a co-founder of an international fashion brand. Um, and she and, and her partner started this, I think, like 15 years ago. And then there was a period of time where their company and the number of people in it grew 10x. And, um, and she was finding that, that she was just like super stressed and like just not, it, it, things were not working out. And so um, she knew that she needed to be able to manage or lead in a different way. And yes, there could be skills that she could learn about delegation and like create, setting a vision and like, yeah, OKR, strategic planning. But until she could fundamentally change, like, how is it that she thought about what, because she is someone who really cared about her employees. She cared about the interaction. She cared about how they felt about working there. She cared like, and she cared about customers, all that stuff until she could fundamentally change, you know, how is it that care could look like in the context of her company? She would not be able to execute against like being able to delegate in the way that she needed to being able to uh, set the vision in the way that she wanted to being able to revise job descriptions in the way that they needed to, because before like the way that care looked like was like always being present, always being available, being able to like know every single person in the company. Because you can be like, in this situation. Yeah. Um, versus, you know, what might that look like in this new environment, but in a way that still was very authentic to her. To, to me, that sounds like a bit more of like value stuff. Like, but would you say that it's like under the category or the bucket of, uh, person development, or what, you, what is the name for it? <laughs> I, I still find I still have a very hard time describing the type of coaching that I do now. Um, and it's yeah, funny yeah. because when because you've been doing it for so long, right? <laughs> yeah, and also like I, I've actually I've literally been asking my clients at the end of engagements, you know, how would you describe this type of coaching to someone who hasn't experienced it? And they're like. I don't know. It's really hard, but what I can say is life changing, and that's like nice. But in my head, I'm like that doesn't really <laughs> like help. Um, uh, but they would even argue. I don't know if you've seen some of the testimonials. They even like argue against that label. But anyways, it's it's uh, it's a change or like this whole vertical developmental coaching is interesting because it's like changing the way in which we respond to the challenges we face every day, um, and so. Again, like for for the client who's like a C level person at her her fashion company, what changed was instead of um, 
instead of thinking about like, how is it that she could best care for the people involved whenever these challenges came up, it was about changing that into how is it that she could, like, how could she exhibit care by holding space for people to, um, for people to be able to express their own creativity and problem solving, which is like very different. It's kind of, it's a, it's a rewiring of, of like our, our embedded tendencies, kind of like, you know, for me, I, I used to be very much like the way that I dealt with uncertainty was to plan, 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 plan. Here's the entire decision tree, plan A, plan B, plan all the way to like Z or whatever. Whereas now the way that I respond to uncertainty is very different, not only cognitively, but like in, in other ways as well. Um, but I know, I, I feel like we're probably we're getting out into this kind of like. That's fair. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I think there is certain uh, kernel of truth uh, 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 to it that, you know, sometimes like the, the, the fifth flavor, like umami, it's just, <laughs> it takes an artist to, to find out. And then the scientist is like, yeah, actually it's there. Yeah, we yeah. just didn't know. We didn't have the word for it, right? So yeah. uh, I, I think the, the, the vocabulary of our knowledge are limited uh, to what we have now and perhaps mm-hmm. something that in the future might change and, and you know, it takes, yeah. it takes a group of us to, to sort of like, I think there might be something there. I, I mean, at the end bit? of the day, I guess, you know, it's, it's a way of changing some of our hardwired tendencies and responses um, because when we can change how we, when we can change how we usually respond, to things that come up in our life, there are newer possibilities that are open that may not have been seen as possibilities before. And I feel like my my life work is ultimately about helping people identify, you know, what is it that they want to make possible, and how do they get there? I think I actually understand what you're trying to say, but yeah. there isn't a word so far know. You know, that in my vocabulary that. <laughs> that you know could describe exactly that but it's more so like you know you probably have certain tendencies where a sudden event happened and then you react this way right so it, <laughs> like the fright uh, so it's not fright like uh, what is that menses from a victor frankel thing where you know in between event and you know mm, yeah, yeah. you think of thing there's like this thing that happened in the middle and you have the choice actually to change right. that and so i think your thing is like can i change that for someone you know where this event happened and you know this is the reaction you might have a different thing in the middle. Now I can process it differently. Then now the whole thing can be different. Mm-hmm. So what you think that is? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nail it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds, that sounds really cool. Yeah. I, I, yeah we'll, we'll think about the word when I, if I come up with something. I yeah. If you come up with a word, let me know. <laughs> yeah. How would you, um, how would you bring that up? I mean, like, do, did the client came in into it knowing that that is the, the, the problem? No. During that conversation, no. actually, okay. I, I find that um, a number of my clients now aren't completely like they aren't completely sure what to expect, and then by the end of the engagement, they're just like this, like yeah. I just so you know, I, I when when I signed up to work with you, I wasn't really sure what this would look like or what the outcome would be, but this is completely blown out of the water. Everything that I could have expected and more I'm like well that's great yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how would you how okay so let's just use that as an anchoring example right 
because um, then you talk about you know like listening and asking questions and 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 then when you spot that thing right like so if you ask a whole bunch of questions and you're like oh that is the thing that needs to be changed how do you go about getting them to awareness right <laughs> I, I you know I know uh, I know yeah and then after that getting the buy-in to like hey you know would you be open to you know, having a different way of thinking about the situation, mm. then, you know, then, then having coming into the idea themselves, then them changing, right? Yeah. How does that sort of journey look like? Because <laughs> I'm fascinated. It's, it's so funny because um, like I'm, I'm thinking about, I have a particular client in mind where, again, like I part, part of my evolution as a coach has been training myself not to try to go in and like, like articulate the insight or go in with a solution before the client might be ready. Because if they aren't, if they aren't in the place where they they can receive it, nothing's going to happen. And (laughs) it might even just blow up. And so. Ask you actually, just put a footnote on that. Like when you like touch on something that you like, how do you reverse, you know, how do you step back a little bit and, you know, like repair that, that trust? Um, but let's, let's go, like, yeah, part B. Yeah, I've learned that sometimes I have to sit on it. And, and again, it becomes like, well, where, and here's where, I, like, I'm thinking back to, like, in the Alt-MBA where, you know, you have to do the whole, like, worldview exercise, like putting yourself in someone else's shoes and understanding how do they see the world and you know, this new thing that you you want to introduce to them does it fit in their world and if not like how do you need to like what is the change or shift you actually do need to make in their world and sometimes it takes multiple steps until they get to the point where they can like hear this piece that you wanted to you, can, can, can you give me an example of like the piece and you know the woe shifting ideas that you need to like sidestep, baby step your way to that change? <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. So I work with I work with a number of or, this is a phrase that a former client had coined for me, and I use it to this day. And she's like, Oh, so you're like a coach for type A folks. Like go-getter, super ambitious, like people have this track record of success, um, but now they, they're trying to work on something. And, uh, and so I, I work with a lot of people who are very cognitive, very ambitious, very go, 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 um, very analytical. And because I, I know what it's like to be like that, that's why they enjoy working with me. They're like, oh, you understand, you're an engineer, you're a pharma consultant, blah, blah, blah. Um, and sometimes, you know, like sometimes one of the challenges come up is they're facing burnout and they're, they're trying, they, they're trying to find a way out of burnout. That is not like quitting their job and becoming a, like, uh, a garden designer, which is like, like an actual thing. <laughs> one of my clients was like, should I just quit my software engineering job and design gardens for a living? And like, I don't know, but let's. Let's embark on this exploration. But anyways, um, again, developmental coaching, like some of the the rewiring of um, the operating system may be that they need to be able to 
be okay with stillness. That, you know, like all that is valuable in the world is not things that you can do. But that's, that's a very hard thing to tell someone who has built their entire life and like their entire success from doing things and knowing things and like being in their cognitive mind. Right. And so it might take. Um, okay. So the end goal is stillness. Yeah. And then where they are <laughs> recognizing at, like, the value of, of stillness. Yeah. Where they are at. It's like, I got to do, 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 do. Like my, yeah, then, where they're at then. is like my value is immediately derived from all of the things that I do and produce. Okay, with my it. mind. Okay, 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 got it. Let's let's talk about the journey. I'll, I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, and so there there might be like even just like a first step of awareness. So when, um, if if they're feeling burnout, right? Just like paying attention to what does burnout feel like? What does burnout feel like emotionally? What does burnout feel like in their body? And when are they noticing it happens? Okay, so you go right. by letting them notice of this right. pain. And so it's just like really, really What's big. the prelude yeah. to that? Yeah, so like baby step, I just want you to pay attention. Okay, we're trying to solve for burnout. What does that actually feel like? And and sometimes they they may have never actually articulated it. Like they they felt it, but they they haven't like tried to articulate like, oh, you know, what am I feeling? Where do I feel that in my body? Right. Um, and so there might be like paying attention to that. And then, you know, then paying attention to, well, what does it feel like when you're not in burnout mode? And then like getting familiar with that. Because uh, sometimes the, the, the visceral like knowledge of the bad thing can be really clear and they're just running away from the bad thing, but they may not actually understand like, what is it that I'm trying to cultivate? Right. Um, and so there might be, okay, what's the awareness of when, when you're not in burnout and then there might be the added layer of, okay, now that you have an awareness of what that feels like, when do you notice these feelings come up or not? And then there might be like, oh, they notice that burnout feels like when, when they have all the things to do and then like a whole bunch of stuff that's not going to get done. Um, and gosh, I'm trying to think through like the, this is like a while back, but you know, there's like. Yeah, not burnout. I mean, I, let, let me try to see if I, and then, and then what are the situations like, like, you know, when they don't feel burnout. So then. Then there's like, okay, here's the end point, how I want to feel like and how's the situation look like. And then how do you take from you being in this situation to you feeling like that and then sort of like trying to give possibilities and see if they accept it along the way? Does it? And so, yeah, it's like slowly because, you know, initially their worldview is just like, I operate in my cognitive space. Like it's very, very like up here, cerebral, like anything that is valuable is stuff that I'm doing, not doing anything is invaluable or not invaluable. Actually it's not valuable because invaluable, same thing as valuable. But anyway, so like, and then, you know, just like shifting their worldview little by little to, um, okay. Like now, instead of just being in the cerebral space, they also have an awareness of emotions and body. Okay. And then from there, um, they also have an awareness of like, what, what could it, what could different feel like? 
like, okay, working with that. Okay. And then maybe there are practices in, you know, how might they infuse that little by little into their life? Even if it's five minutes of time, what are they noticing when they do that? And then like getting to a point where, you know, like hopefully, or they might be at a place where then they're willing to, you know, try certain things and they see a positive result and they're like, Oh, wow. Sitting and meditating for 10 minutes every day actually really makes a difference. And then there's, and then there's like all the other work that we can do after that. But like, even just, <laughs> but if I had suggested, I want you to meditate for 10 minutes a day, like when they're over here, they're like, I have so much to do. Da, 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 da. Okay, no, I get it. I get it. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Cool. Yeah, I'm gonna, I think there's a lot of food for thought for people to, to try it out. And, uh, you know, I think I have, yeah, certainly t- took a lot from that. Okay, so I want to get in a little bit ab- about, let's see, um, the part B of that, right? When you hit on something triggering, and then you're like backing away, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. How do you repair that? Oh, is that a situation? Can you remember that you repair that? It might be intuitively. I found that most of the time I ask this question to people. Mm-hmm. They have an intuitive thing. So it's more art than it's more like they know the actual Yeah, script. I mean. Is it for you like that? Yeah, I, I would say so. It might be in very much like a coaching fairy moment. What are the coaching fairies telling me? Um, Can you do you remember like uh, that time that it happened? And do you remember what you know, like you sort of like, how would you normally react? Oh, okay. Or, or I mean, like this this wasn't it wasn't like um, like super. I just remember like a time when, um, like I had offered a, a practice, like a centering practice to a client and, and I had her, like, we were physically doing it. I was like physically demonstrating it and had her do it with me so that she could get, she could understand like, what does it actually look like? And, um, and I could see on, on, on their face, like, <laughs> like she's, probably like holding in the urge to roll her eyes. And um, I mean, like I, I just articulated what I was observing. Mm. Oh, okay. And Call, also, calling the elephant out. Okay. Yeah. But also like not judging and in fact doing the opposite and like validating why I understood that that might be the reaction. Oh, can you give me the script? Do you remember what exactly you say? Again, it's like, it's not a script thing, but I mean, it's, again, going back. No, the wording right. is important in that sense because saying someone, hey, I, because like, how do you script in a way that's not judgmental? I think that's. In- yeah. I mean, like, it's so, again, like I always go back to people just want to be seen, understood, met where they are. And so in this situation, I was seeing that you know there there was some feelings coming up right um and that as far as like being met where she that the the practice itself may have felt kind of beyond her comfort zone and so like acknowledging that like hey i noticed you know what is the because um going back to what you said how you do this without being judgmental is uh, especially if, if you're familiar with 
nonviolent communication, there's the distinction between like, what are the facts versus the interpretation, right? What do you see on a video camera? Exactly. Describe that. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I saw that there's a little bit of a, like a, a face. There. Yeah. And I'm wondering, oh, this is actually interesting. So, oh, okay. A classic, if you want a script, like a classic script that I learned actually from when I was checking out preschools for my son was, um, hey, I saw or I noticed and I wonder, right? Uh, yeah, because the saw I noticed is part A. You need the part B too because mm-hmm. people are not so inclined to tell you how they, why they feel that way. And so you need to sort of help them breach the gap by giving them a suggestion mm-hmm. uh, and calling it out. And then, then they'll be easy to say, oh, actually, it's not that. This is something else. Yeah. Or I notice and I wonder. Okay. And then is there, then what is the part B? Uh, I mean, after that, like what, after then, they say something. Then you dance with what, what comes up. Yeah. And there might be a continued, like some version of like, I notice and I wonder. And, you know, ultimately, again, since I sensed that, um, I may not have been meeting her where she was. Like, how do I then make her feel seen, understood, and met where she is? And so, like, I normalized, you know, like, oh, I, I get it. Like, yeah, this, this feels a little, this is not something that you're used to doing. That's totally fine. I am not asking you to be an expert in this. This is very new, and it's going to feel new, and that's okay. We are running on time here. I, we hit. Um, what are you? What are? What's the time that I have with you? So I can. Uh, let's say ten streamline. minutes because I want to. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Those. Okay. Um, powerful question. Okay. So, what are some hard truths that people, or maybe we actually probably already uh, covered that, but people who are getting into coaching should know, like hard truth. Hmm. Um. Well, I guess first you should. Figure out, is this something that you want to be your hobby or your profession? Because how you then respond will differ, right? And so if it's just going to be like a hobby, something you do on the side, what you end up doing will be different than if this needs to pay the bills, right? Um, And I think one of the hard truths is that it takes time to build a client base, especially if you're going to be a solopreneur coach. Good news is that you always have. What time period are we? If you're like a normal (laughs) average, I'm. I'm not the one to again. Like I'm. I'm not one of those people. There are coaches out there who are in business for helping coaches get into business. I am not one of those people. Okay, and so like I can't speak to what averages are. But at least, you know, it's going to be six months. So you better have enough runway for six months. Like, yeah, I would say, well, in (laughs) general, I would say six months living expenses is a great emergency fund to have no matter what you do. Agree. (laughs) No, also I have friends who are starting F&B restaurants like, well, two years. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, And I think it's um, Another thing to know is that this can look in a lot of different ways. And so be open to what are the different ways that this might look for you and what are the ways in which, especially if your runway or timeline is going to be defined by finances, how will you continue to extend the timeline if you want this to be your profession? Mm, mm, mm. Okay. 
Um, I want to talk a little bit about, like, spend some of our final time on um, connection and finding a tribe. And it's just a pretty open-ended question that, you know, perhaps we could explore together. Um, yeah, riff on, uh, on those two and how it is showing up in your life. Mm. Um, can I just say that, like, when, when you first sent me the email reaching out and you said that your podcast is called Misfits. I was like, there's something about that that resonated with me because I feel like, um, I feel like a misfit in the, uh, the structural networks that I've already been a part of, and so like a little bit of my background. I went to Stanford University, which is like big name university on the West Coast in California. Uh, I got my MBA, which also has its own like. <laughs> connotations from UC Berkeley, another like big prestigious university. And I find that the work that I'm doing and what I'm all about is not traditional given those circles. Um, And so it has been a challenge trying to figure out uh, like who, who is my tribe, even though like I love, I love my classmates from Stanford. I love my classmates from UC Berkeley. And it's just that like, I, I don't work in an office. I don't work in tech or for a startup or in any of these like um, very much more clearly defined industries. And so, yeah, finding a, a tribe of people who I could relate to professionally um, and also life, yeah, and lifestyle-wise. Like another thing that was challenging for me in the past few years was even though when I was starting my business, it was easy enough to find tribes of like solopreneurs, entrepreneurs. But then when I wanted to have kids, like you can't just like go, 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 kick ass. Um, when you're like pregnant and dealing with like first trimester, all this crap. And then when you have like a newborn, it's like very different, like running with you know, a tribe of entrepreneurs who's just like, just do it. Just go, 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 go. Um, didn't really work. <laughs> and so finding, finding a tribe of like mompreneurs was important. And um, it's the internet is a wonderful thing because I feel like that has definitely facilitated me finding communities who I can ideate with and brainstorm and seek counsel from and just be on this journey with and I think the next puzzle I'm trying to figure out is how can I also find a community of people in real life, like locally, who I can relate to in in ways that are supportive. I think it's the same. It's the same over here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, dive into our little uh, short questionnaire that I sent you. Uh, I'm gonna uh, not ask you a couple of questions that you don't have answers to. But well, that's fine. Let's... You can ask me, and I might just be like, pass. Okay, yeah. So uh, what are the books or a book or books that you have given most as a gift? Um, I give Designing Your Life out as a gift quite often. <sighs> yeah. Can I say I also second that book? Mm-hmm. It's really good. Yeah, it's, um, it's really great. The group who developed it's really great. And they continue to iterate on their curriculum, um, which has been a joy to see, just like in, in the ways that I've been able to work with them. Yeah, what is the best way? Do you think that the book itself is enough or um, uh, for you to get started? Or, you know, like, what do you think is the best methodology to sort of get it? Because they did recommend one of the things is to find, like, a couple, like, 
three to five, right? Yeah. Like I, I think the book is great because it's a lot of really useful tools. But again, yeah. sometimes when you're going through that introspection process or just trying to ideate what, um, what is next or even finding opportunities to prototype, mm. it's much more useful to do that in a group because the, the like the yeah. interactions you have, the dialogues can just prompt such so much more than you could achieve on your own. That's right. How do you have any online communities that you recommend people to reach out to um, if they are looking to find a group or they are in a place where in real life they don't have the people that would be able to go on the journey with them? Um, I mean, like... I forward think link? You can just, yeah, like forward link is great for that. I feel like there are a lot of people who are who are trying to to figure out what's next, myself included. I mean, I'm... Going through that iteration now that like I, I've had my second kid, I, I actually yeah. one of the reasons why I advocate for doing this in a group is, um, I like I had done the designing your life women's retreat mm. when was it last year, and um, because the the managing director of the life design lab was a client of mine and for what we were working on, I wanted to see her in that environment, and it was really great. It's like so wonderful to be able to do it in a group. Yeah, but would you say then that like as in like group a couple of days? Because it feels like the prototype process is like a long months long process yeah. that you know. So you so that's more like a place where you go make the connections and then like to stay in touch after the thing right. too. Yeah. Right. So not, then would you would you then be going back again to find that connection again, or would you think that you you just go back to the past context from the the previous because they probably have found a thing you know like it was it was great to do kind of like some intensive brainstorming and um just like thinking through things with other like in sync with other people and Mm. then uh i found other support communities that'll help me carry through some of the things that i identified i wanted to prototype Oh, and you built that up. Uh, yeah, uh, like I mean, one of the work. prototypes was creating a podcast. And so the podcasting fellowship earlier this year totally Ooh. carried me through that to, you know, like right right before I had my baby. Yeah, yeah. Um, what have you purchased recently that has most impacted your life? This is really silly, but, and it wasn't even that recent, but oh my gosh, I'm, I'm a person who... Um, straddles the divide between analog and digital. Like when it comes to note taking, even though, yeah, I use Evernote, I still need paper notes, but because I'm someone who likes to organize them and file them and whatever as like hardbound notebooks never worked because I couldn't like refile notes into groupings that made sense or whatever. Like I couldn't Evernote. And so these, I don't know, these are the, um, the notebooks that have like the little wrist, the, the discs disbound game changer for me. I mean, it's really silly, but, um, I'm able to take my notes and then, um, sometimes I will take my camera and I upload them to my Evernote, but I can also refile them into different groupings. So I, what did it, what is it, what is it called? Or oh, this so bound thing? there's a, it's a disc bound notebook. Okay, and so basically, notebook. um, like I can, I can have pages that I, I can take out really easily yeah. and then I can press in. So it's oh, like easier cool. to use than even a three hole punch binder right? and less bulky oh. than a three hole punch binder. What is the worst advice you see or hear being dispensed in your world? 
Oh my god. Okay, this is my <laughs> this is my pet peeve when people are just like, oh my gosh, I have I have this uh um uh, like decision I need to make. And people are like, have you made a pro con list? I'm like, no. <laughs> but like when I'm like 80 years old, if someone says they have a big decision to make, and instead of someone suggesting, oh, have you made a pro con list? You know, which dates back to like age of Benjamin Franklin, like hundreds of years ago. If someone says, have you made a decision matrix? I know my life's work will be done. (laughs) What uh, advice would you give? I guess you sort of touched a little bit on that. Uh, Advice you give for your 20-year-old self and your 30-year-old self and then place us where you're at. Yeah, for 20-year-old self, it would be like the, the only thing you can count on is the only thing that you can be sure of is that things will change. So try, try to get used to that. And then 20-year-old self would be like, Psh, I just need a good plan. And, <laughs> and then let's see, like 30-year-old self. What I doing? Always come back to what was this for? Are there any routines or habits that you find important? Morning, evening routines, weekly? <laughs> but the first thought that went through my head was sleep. Uh, as a you know, parent of a three and a half year old and a six month old, and um, I don't really have like routines because my schedule is not really mine anymore. It's dictated by like these little people who choose to wake up when they need to and like are relying on me to do things for them. <laughs> so as much in between, catch as much sleep as you can. It's just like sleep. If I can do if if I can do that on a regular basis, that'll be great. If you have a time machine, when would you travel to, uh, and what would you do there? When and where would you travel to? That one, I don't know. I have to pass. <laughs> what are the most common misconceptions about you or your work? <laughs> that that good decision making is all about being able to drive the the best outcomes. That's a misconception. Are there any upcoming projects that uh, people could look forward to? Yeah. Um, let's see. In the long term, at some point in time, there will be a book about decision-making. But in the shorter time frame, uh, in 2020, I am looking forward to getting back to my podcast, Ask a Decision Engineer. Uh, are there any... Ask or requests for the audience, last parting words, thoughts to take away and to consider to try. Um, like I'm really passionate about decisions because I feel like the decisions are the way we are able to create the life that we want. Uh, if we are willing to recognize when we can make a decision and we have the courage to take them and make them. So I think those are the parting words. Uh, ask for the audience. If you have any questions about decision-making or you want to hear me riff about anything on decision-making, you can go and record a question at askadecisionengineer.com. Perfect. All right. I guess that's will be where people will find you on the internet. And I saw a link to your website. Is there anything else that anywhere people can, you would love people to find you? Um, you can also find me at michelleflorendo.com and the social media channel I hang out on most is LinkedIn. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and before I sort of like end off, I just want to tell people also, 
uh, Michelle has sort of created a little uh, decision matrix uh, list questions. I'll sort of, uh, we'll, we'll tidy it up and I'll send it across to you and then we'll put it as PDF thing people can download. For anyone who is thinking of sort of being a coach and sort of some of the questions you can go through yourself. Uh, and so thank you so much for taking the time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a pleasure and I uh, hope to see you one day over at the East Bay. Yeah, or maybe who knows in Singapore. See. That's right. Uh, well, Mary's going to come. So uh, maybe <laughs> I can get you over too. Well, hello. It's over. But before I let you go, I just want to tell you the new newsletter that I've created. It's called Curious Cargo. It's all the coolest link I found on the internet and sometimes quite random. It could be a porn star on a porn website that might not be safe for work. It could be <laughs> a latest product that I've tried, uh, including recently I just uh, told people about this placards, uh, really good placards. I was deep into placards, trying out different placards. <laughs> or it could be toothpaste. So <laughs> if that is the thing that you want to geek out upon and I geek out upon those, um, feel free to sign up. You can find it at brianvictor.com. Uh, updates. Click on updates under the menu bar and you can sign up there. It's called Curious Cargo. And if you if you get one, I hope you can enjoy it. In the meantime, have a good, fantastic, amazing week ahead. Mm -hmm.